Yeah, I see the message. Good. Okay, perfect. So, so Sheila, uh, just to, I will introduce myself and, and, and Susan will introduce herself. And then we're going to be very excited because we have a wonderful guest. Uh, and then we're going to talk to you about uh, the feline anesthesia guidelines. for saying sorry media presents the per podcast the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips tricks and updates for the entire veterinary professional healthcare team if you are dying to know more about cats keep on listening here are your hosts dr susan little famous cat vet and author of multiple textbooks and dr yola kerpenstein talented surgeon and social media geek hello this is dr yola kerpenstein and this is Dr. Susan Little. Hey, Susan, how are you doing? I'm good. Guess where I am, Yola? Uh, let me guess, let me guess. It's not in North America. It's probably not in Africa. I guess Europe. <laughs> yeah, so every almost every time we do this podcast, I make you guess where I am. I know, you're crazy. You know, I was so amazed that you hit the 100 flights already and we're not even at the end of the year what's going on i know know it's kind of a sad thing actually so so i'm in warsaw and and as you probably know i came here from rotterdam and i came to rotterdam from argentina so you're actually really lucky to be talking to me you're lucky i made it (laughs) i just want to say you had the craziest itinerary so you went from Argentina to Chile, Chile to Toronto, Toronto to Amsterdam, Amsterdam to Warsaw. And no. Amsterdam to Rotterdam and then to Warsaw. Yeah, but I mean, there's no flight from Amsterdam no. to Rotterdam. You just took the train. No. But so so yeah, it takes yeah. you five or six flights to get to a next spot. No wonder you have a hundred flights under your belt. Yeah, but mm-hmm. I'm very excited to be here, um, partly because I like Warsaw. And I'm doing some lectures at a conference here called Vetco, which I really like. But mm-hmm. even better is our guest for this podcast. I know. I'm so excited about that. But first about Vetco, I think they're doing a really good job in Poland. So a big shout out for them. They're, they're, they're yes. obviously have never asked me to speak there, which is a disappointment. But for the rest, <laughs> I mean, it's a great company, I hear. So, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, maybe I'll doing... put in a good word for you with, uh, with the Vetco people. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. But we are really excited because, you know, last time we had our awesome uh, Sarah Boston talking to us uh, about the injection site sarcoma, a great interview. And now we have another highlight of the PER podcast coming up because we have Dr. Sheila Robertson here. Sheila, how are you doing? Really good. Thank you, Yula. Oh, it is so fantastic that you're on because we have such a 
great topic to talk about, which are the new AAFP feline anesthesia guidelines. And we're all excited about this document because it, it, it was definitely needed. And, uh, and I think, uh, um, our thought processes about feline anesthesia have changed quite a bit. And that is thanks to you and many other people that are really focusing on the cat lately. And this is really why we started the per podcast because we feel that, uh, that there's a lot of literature always about dogs or the D word, but we sometimes forget cats. So this document, uh, I read it. I love it. And, and, and really, Sheila, can you tell me a little bit, uh, because we know that we have the AHA feline guidelines on anesthesia that was in 2011. Uh, why did you get the inspiration to, to redo those? So these are the first feline only anesthesia guidelines because mm -hmm. a lot of the um, joint efforts with AHA have always involved dogs and cats. So, you know, like the fluid therapy guidelines are dogs and cats. The pain management guidelines, which I was also a part of that committee, and they were dogs and cats. So this is very much standalone, only about cats. I don't think the word dog is mentioned, except maybe in a Yay! reference. And we love that. We love that because we're all about cats. So although Susan sometimes drops the dog word, and that's because she has a dog. That's because I have two dogs. So yeah, I have to say right. something every now and then about my dogs. Yeah, so Sheila, before we get into the guidelines, we'll dive into that. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? And, and, and one thing, there, you made quite a big switch uh, uh, like a year ago. So uh, give us a little bit of an introduction who you are and, uh, and what you're doing. Okay. So I grew up in Scotland and went to Glasgow University to do my veterinary degree. And then after that, I went into mixed animal practice and then decided I thought I wanted to be a surgeon. So I went to Bristol to be a surgeon, um, but then swapped and switched my mind and decided to become a, an anesthetist or anesthesiologist. What so was I trained wrong? Bristol. What was wrong so here? You couldn't <laughs> be a surgeon. Yeah, poor Yola thinks something went really wrong that you didn't want to be a surgeon. Yeah, I well, know. Yeah, the real reason is that when I was doing surgery, time I asked a surgeon a question, they, had a, they always had an answer. When I did my anesthesia rotation, the person that ran anesthesia, every question he said, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know how this works. We don't know why they wake up. We don't know why. And I decided that maybe if I did anesthesia, one day I might figure out a little bit more about anesthesia, but it's still a mystery. Yep. So I trained there. And then I moved to Canada and then to the U.S. And then I became um, specialized in the U.S. and Europe in anesthesia. And also interested in animal welfare. So I'm boarded in Europe and the U.S. in animal welfare, um, acupuncture trained, um, a lot of shelter medicine training as well. Um, so I've mostly been in academia or with the AVMA doing animal welfare. And then a year and a half ago, I switched to be senior medical director for Lap of Love. And that's a company currently based in the U.S. only. Uh, we, we have uh, almost 130, just about to go over 130 veterinarians around the U.S. 
and we do in-home um, end-of-life consultations and in-home euthanasia for dogs and cats and other plenty of other little creatures too and big wow <laughs> so that's wow. so that's my new gig wow that's amazing so uh, your whole life in what like one minute when people ask yep. me that question i always like oh i i'm I'm always starting to, to kind of mumble because I never know what to say, but this is really good. I need to, uh, I need to practice this. Susan, you have a question. Oh yeah. So I thought, um, you know, we have, uh, we have the amazing uh, Dr. Robertson here uh, talking to us about the anesthesia guidelines, but because I've served on guidelines before, I know they're never done by one person. So I thought a good place to start might be for Sheila, just to tell us a little bit about um, who was on the panel uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, why, and, and why we put together panels of people when we do guidelines like this. Yes. So it was a pretty tremendous team that was put together. And so the co-chair was, um, Susan Kogolski and she is canine feline, um, boarded by the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners. And she actually works at, um, Fort Sam in Houston. So she was co-chair, um, the person that, you know, dotted the I's and crossed the T's, very detail-oriented. And then we had um, Peter Pascoe, who has just retired from UC Davis, um, a tremendously knowledgeable anesthesiologist and uh, a really great thinker. So he was awesome to have. And then just before you go on, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Pascoe was one of my professors. Oh, at, at the Ontario Vet College when I was a student. So, yep. really so cool. We were happy to have Peter. And then we had um, Heidi Shafford, who is board certified in anesthesia, but she runs her own business. So, she's doing a lot of anesthesia actually in other people's practices and advising them. So, that was a great resource. And then we thought it was like tremendously important to include uh, anesthesia technician or nurse. And so I had worked with Jennifer Sager at the University of Florida, and she is actually specialized in critical care and anesthesia as a veterinary technician. So she joined the group and had great insight from the side of a nurse or technician, because in most practices, that's who's running anesthesia. So that was awesome. And then we had Greg um, Griffin-Hagen, and he is at Colorado State. And he'd actually been a member of some other guidelines, so he knew what he was getting himself into. <laughs> so it's a great team. And um, one of the other things I want to point out before we go a little further is that these are guidelines from the American Association of Feline Practitioners. And we make all of our guidelines available for free on our AFP website. And so that website is catvets.com. And you don't even have to be an AFP member you can still go ahead and download uh, these guidelines and all of our other guidelines for free from catpets.com. Um, so I, I have one more question for you, at, at least before I let Yola talk again. And that is, why do we need anesthesia guidelines just for cats? So we have had a, you know, not too long ago, um, joint dog and cat. Why do we need guidelines for cats? So I think everybody knew and that was verified by large studies um, that cats historically 
have always had a higher mortality rate compared to dogs when it comes to anesthesia. And that was confirmed back in the 80s um, by a group in the UK led by Kathy Clark. And then it was um, verified again by Dr. David Broadbelt in a very large study where he had like 98,000 dogs and over 80,000 cats. And cats had a higher mortality rate um, overall, and even if they were classified as being healthy. And then there was a very recent study at a very high volume uh, spay and neuter clinic where, again, although the mortality rate was extremely low, cats still had a higher mortality rate than dogs at that very large clinic in Tampa, Florida. So there's something unique about the cat that, you know, puts them at higher risk. And what we aimed to do was um, look at all of that data, look at current data, why are they at risk, and then to educate people why they're at risk but most importantly, how you can decrease that risk and improve the outcome. That was the whole goal. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And I think, I, I think you know, like I said, I'm a big fan of anything the AFP does. Uh, I, I love the Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery, and I know that you can get it there too if you want to download it uh, from them. It's all free download. Um, and and I, I really believe this this was really really necessary. And and you pointed out well that cats have a higher risk of mortality, and and the lower we can make the risk, the better that is. So what are the five key points, or maybe less key points, that you would suggest why this is that cats have a bit higher risk than like a dog? Well, I think it's very multifactorial, but I think if we start at the beginning, a lot of cats arrive at a clinic in, at a very high, with a very high stress level. I know dogs do as well, but I think it's pretty extreme in some cats. And so they arrive already, you know, with all, you know, with lots of, you know, epinephrine floating around, very upset, um, makes them difficult to handle, do a good exam. And all of those things, like, do not go well with anesthetic drugs and anesthesia. And so that's one thing is their high stress level at admission. The other thing is their small size, and that would make them very prone to hypothermia, which then has multiple um, consequences. Um, equipment, um, if people just try and, like, adapt their dog equipment for cats, it might not be quite the right equipment, not the right size, the right circuits, and so on. So that's one thing. And then we know that a lot of the problems for not just mortality, but morbidity, what happens post-operatively, is related to their airway. And um, airway obstruction is a common cause of uh, a crisis in the recovery period. And then we know that they're the, the most likely time they're going to die is actually once the anesthesia is over in that first three hours. That's when 61% of cat mortalities actually happen. And then the other thing, which was illuminated by the um, joint AHA AFP fluid guidelines, is that dogs and cats have very, very different blood volumes. And yet, historically, in anesthesia, as far as fluid rates go under anesthesia, they've been treated the same, and that needs to change and is beginning to change. 
Um, so those are some of the key points. There are other things that put them at risk. One is actually um, obesity, um, and that probably, probably is true of dogs too. Turn a very, very large, overweight cat on its back, you've probably got some mm. problems. So those are some identified, and um, so it's related to the cat, but we also focused on human error, you know, what, what happens with equipment, checking equipment, equipment lists, um, when things aren't used correctly, if the equipment itself can cause problems. So we incorporated a lot of checklists and um, suggested some things that people could do to improve the safety so they didn't have a human error adding to the risk as well. So there, there is multifactorial. Yeah, and I love, I love that you say that, uh, Sheila, because there are obviously many, many differences. And if I pull it back to what I do in surgery is that we often use the same equipment as surgeons for cats and dogs. And, and, and we should really start thinking about that a little bit too, that because cats are so different in, in many ways that they do that, that we should adapt to, to the cat instead of the cat adapting to us. And that's really what you're trying to say. And I like the fact that you highlight some of these things like comorbidities that, that are present that might really influence your anesthesia. So what we will do is probably we will go into these various topics and talk a little bit about it. But I know that Susan is dying to ask a question. So Susan. <laughs> Well, oh, I am. So, so Sheila mentioned something that's kind of dear to my heart, and that's checklists. So I know you, like me, are a fan of the checklist manifesto, yep. and um, uh, that kind of opens your eyes to how important checklists have been, not just in human medicine and, and in human anesthesia, but in other industries. Airline industry is a good example, right? And But it seems to me that it's only recently we're kind of late in the game, aren't we, in veterinary medicine coming to checklists? It, it seems to me that um, uh, there has not been widespread use of checklists. Yeah, I think it's obviously very, it's clear that from Atal Gawande's work from the Checklist Manifesto uh, that was initiated for surgical mistakes or to decrease surgical mistakes and human error, that it works. I mean, the data is black and white that checklists work. And they actually, the resistance has been that they would slow things down. Mm. And that's actually been shown not to be true. And the other thing is, you know, people are beginning to realize that a checklist isn't questioning someone's ability. It's just making sh sure that a team that may not always work together mm. can work together. And um, we know that it's saving lives. But I have to admit that I've worked with some pretty innovative people. And so I've been working around checklists for about at least eight years. And, you know, there are anesthesia checklists, but they are now usually the ones that work very well are merged with surgical checklists. So right. they start with, you know, do we have the right patient, patient. and are we doing the right <laughs> procedure? And so the checklist is initiated, you know, before anesthesia even starts. And then it continues through the anesthetic um, process. And then when you start the surgery, there's another timeout. And then at the end, and then the handover to re recovery. So it goes from, you know, before, during, and after. Um, it, it sort of spans the whole period that the cat is under our care. So I, I think it's pretty clear that um, checklists are, are, are useful 
Um, they they help prevent human error. They help reduce morbidity and mortality. Uh, and uh, uh, there's no reason that private practices can't start using checklists as well. They're not that difficult to use once you get the team training in place. Nope. We have um, suggested like sources and included the things that we would, you know, put in a checklist. Uh, one that we have, and actually just to mention, a lot of the parts of the guidelines are in separate um, PDFs that can be downloaded. So you can download the checklist, how to test out an anesthesia machine before each use. So that's just like the airline pilot um, checking out the plane. Um, and someone just recently asked me, like, do you really need to check your machine every case? And I was like, well, would you just be happy if the airline pilot just checked his plane maybe <laughs> once a week? Um, no, so you check it every time the plane takes off. So we check the anesthesia machine. Even if you set it up yourself, you, you quickly check it over. You don't know what's happened to it. So we have a how to check an anesthesia machine before you even start to make sure it's working. And, and so that you can print off on its own. Um, I would suggest you laminate it, punch, put a punch hole in it, and hang it on your, all your anesthesia machines and have everybody go through it each, each time. Great tip. So that's one of the things that we would hope people would do with the downloadable um, checklists that we have. And I think that's a good point that you make there because uh, it's a team effort. Eh? So everybody in the team needs to be convinced that this is really what we should do. And I can imagine that Susan will get really nervous if we only check airplanes only once a week because yes. you know she's in an airplane so often. Um, <laughs> And we don't want Susan to fall out of the sky, so uh, for sure. So, so I, I would like to switch the topic a little bit to stress and caps. You mentioned that at the number one point, so that must be high on the list. And and you have in your article a really nice overview of management of uh, fearful caps. Can you highlight a couple of points what we should do there? Yeah. So I think what we've tried to do with the guidelines is shift the sort of um, feeling that anesthesia is just about what happens when the cat is, you know, ready to be sedated and then, you know, induced or general anesthesia for the either diagnostics or procedure to saying, no, anesthesia starts, you can start planning and thinking about it when the cat is still in its own home. So it, what can you do at the cat's own home? Then it comes to the clinic, it goes through the process, and then anesthesia really doesn't end and analgesia until the cat returns home and is, you know, back to normal function. So what we emphasize is that if it's a planned procedure, so the cat has seen a veterinarian and they've decided the cat needs a dental. So at that appointment, the cat can be sent home with a drug called gabapentin, which we highly recommend for keeping, making these cats a lot less stressed and more, more sedate. A, for the trip, to the clinic and so that we can do a better physical exam on them when they arrive. So that makes, safe, make it, makes it much safer, makes it less of an adver, you know, aversive event for the cat and decreases all the stress levels, you know, the tachycardia. Because, I mean, I have a lot of students that think that the normal heart rate of a cat is 220. <laughs> that's because that's all they've ever seen. <laughs> you know, unless you have your own cat and you quietly check its heart rate at home, you don't know that and, you know, the, the hypertension from the stress. So we, rec we recommend in the guidelines um, gabapentin, 
um, either the night before and or the morning before they travel, a couple of hours before they travel. And we, we do believe that helps a lot. And we also recommend that the owners can treat their carrier with um, feline pheromones uh, as another stress reducer. And that cats, when they arrive, are immediately or as soon as possible um, checked in at the front desk and then put in a separate area, if it's not an all-cat clinic, um, to put them as far away from dogs as possible or preferably straight into their examination room and cover them up um, with a towel and put them on a high place, not on the floor next to a dog. Right, so quiet and calm. Yeah, so those are really good points, I think. And, and, uh, and, you know, I'm fearful when I go to the dentist. I wish that they gave me something <laughs> before I would go there because, um, that's not, not. And so, so that those are really good points and all fit also into fear free practice. Eh? So, uh, that's something that I know Susan and I are both uh, very much fans for that. Yeah. You know, pet friendly practice, fear free. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. So, so we, I remember when I did a lot of anesthesia, um, we were always discussing the fact, should we use pre-anesthetic diagnostics, so especially, you know, uh, blood di diagnostics. Can you give us, shine a little light on that? If we, you know, if a healthy young cat comes in, should we always do blood work before anesthesia? Uh, and why should we do that? So we... Um, address that issue in the guidelines and obviously agree that there are some um, corporate practices where there's a standard where every cat that's undergoing anesthesia will have a certain panel run. Um, sometimes it's people's um, comfort level, but then there are some specific times where, you know, I would say, yes, um, they should, you should run blood work because there's some data from the UK showing that, you know, older cats, um, there are, are some, the physical exam is extremely important. And often what you find on the blood work is not a huge surprise on your physical exam, but you will pick up other things that you didn't um, expect. And in, in those, in that study, the anesthetic protocol was either changed or the procedure was delayed. So I think there are times uh, when, when certainly depending on, on age and not just on age, but age and body condition and what we're actually going to be doing to the cat. Now, I do a lot of um, pediatric spay and neuters in large volumes of like talking like doing 100 kittens in a day. And wow. so we, I don't predict, you know, we do not do preoperative mm. blood work on them. Mm. Um, but if they're not, feral, we would do a clinical exam, but, you know, there's times where it's not, not, doesn't make sense. And there's times where it makes a lot of sense. And then you should, of course, still depend as much as possible on your physical exam, which is easier if the cat is um, not as stressed as it usually is. Because stressed cats, you know, do you believe the glucose that you get if you do the blood work? Is that heart rate real? Is that blood pressure real? Can you even do an exam? Can you even do an exam? Um, so, so that, you know, all, I didn't answer your question completely, but I think there's a wide range of going from nothing sometimes, mm -hmm. which I think, um, sure. you know, in a, in a very, very young, you know, obviously very healthy kitten, where it would be more stressful and not probably give you much information to do blood work all the way to, you know, 
a sicker, older animal are going to go for a you know pretty intensive, complicated surgery. Yeah, and I would like to refer to all our listeners to go back to these anesthesia guidelines, download them, because not only um, there is a division into uh, age groups and, and what probably would be the best uh, approach to each age group, but it also is an explanation of the anesthesia uh, classification that you normally use as an anesthetist, uh, so the ASA classification. So all that information, probably a little bit too deep to go into here at the first podcast, but I mean, it's all in the paper and that's why it's so, so wonderful to read all that. Uh, so this is all really, really interesting information, Sheila. Thank you so much. I think we're uh, at the end of our podcast uh, for now, but the next podcast will also be featuring you. So that is number two. And so I would like to thank you for this part. And and I can't wait until next week when or in two weeks when we will talk about uh, uh, some other aspects of these, these wonderful guidelines. Just to remember, uh, to remind everybody that these anesthesia guidelines can be uh, downloaded for free either through the AAFP uh, website or through uh, the Journal of Feline uh, Surgery and uh, Medicine and Surgery. Um, and Susan, thank you so much for being there and say hello to Poland. Yes, and Sheila, thank you. Thank you. Oh, okay, we'll talk soon. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Hello, this is Dr. Yellowkirfus. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Please note that all opinions given here are purely Dr. Susan and my interpretation. Veterinary medicine is a beautiful but complicated profession as no animal or case is exactly the same. Well, there's one thing for sure. Yeah. Yola and I have strong opinions and we're not afraid to say them. So that's a good thing though, isn't it? Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat Clinical Medicine and Management and August's Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. You can follow her on social media with the handle at CatVetSusan. Dr. Yola Kirpenstein is a diplomat of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently for Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX.